Amen. Thank you, Richard. Richard said he felt we, we feel the presence of the Lord here this morning. Man, that's the understatement of the century. That musical worship, that was just off the chains. I was sitting there thinking they just preached the message. We can just let them stay up here and do four or five more songs and, and call it a day, drop my mics. Good gracious. Part of it is, too, I'm emotional because I've been in quarantine in the penalty box for two weeks, feeling like I was never going to get out. But, I, you know, Susan and I uh, had the Rona, but uh, praise God, got some meds, and in two or three days, really we're feeling virtually 100%. Other than <clears throat> this annoying, meaningless, useless little cough. Just little bitty cough that does nothing because I have no congestion. So if I cough, it's probably going to blow up the speaker. So just bear with me if that happens. Um, you know, I, Richard's explanation, y'all, of communion just now was just spot on. It was so good. And it's so good. Yeah. It's so good to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Togetherness is such a beautiful, good, needed Thing, right? And so part of last week, Richard uh, ended, you know, preached through the, 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 the end of Acts chapter 2 last week. And so Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the, the very, really, the, Peter preaches the first gospel message of the church age. And 3,000 people get saved. 3,000, if you remember, there's 120 up there. And all of a sudden now there's 3,120 Christ followers. He preaches this message, 3,000 people get saved. That is like a mic drop moment. I mean, it's unbelievable. And then at the very end, you, you get this snapshot of the early church, the last four, five, six verses of chapter two. And, and these folks are, you know, what does the Bible say there? It says they're devoted to the apostles' teachings. They're devoted to scripture. They're devoted to the teachings of the resurrection of the Christ. They're devoted to community. They're devoted to breaking bread together. They're devoted to to prayer, there was miraculous living. They were constantly meeting needs, the Bible tells us. And they were engaged in each other's lives. Y'all, we need to be engaged in each other's lives. And you can't do that in isolation. And we're not going to live in isolation. We're not going to live scared. But we're not going to be dumb and go licking doorknobs either. Right? We're going to be engaged with each other. And so those last verses of chapter 2 provide us really with a summary of what that early church looks like. And we're starting a new series today called Growth. You see it behind us. Growth. We just finished Birth was the name of this series in Acts chapter 2 for, I don't know, whatever we were, four, five, six weeks. And it was called Birth because that was the birth of the church. Acts chapter 2 is the birth of the church. And now in Growth, we see the beginnings of the growth of the kingdom. It's born. The kingdom is born. And then it begins to grow in, in chapter 3. And in chapter 3, at least here, what you see is how that engagement in each other's lives and being devoted to the apostles' teaching and breaking bread together and fellowship and community, you see how that all begins to flesh itself out in the life of this early church. So I want to read you. We're going to be in, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, and I want to read quickly through all 11 verses, and then we're going to dive in. Verse 1. One afternoon... At 3 o'clock, the hour of Mincha prayers. Remember, we're in the complete Jewish Bible translation as we walk through Acts. So you see some Hebrew sprinkled in there. Mincha means, uh, y'all say Mincha. One, two, three, Mincha. 
you kind of got to have a little Jewish in you to go, <laughs> it's mincha. So, and that means afternoon. This is the afternoon prayer. One afternoon at three o'clock, the hour of mincha prayers is Kepha and Yochanan, which is Peter and John. They were going up into the temple and a, and a man crippled since birth was being carried in. Every day, the Bible says, every day people used to put him at the beautiful gate. And the beautiful gate doesn't mean the gate was beautiful, although it was, but the name of that gate on the eastern side of the temple was the beautiful gate. So that he could beg from those going into the temple court. When he saw Kepha and Yochanan about to enter, he asked them for some money. But they stared straight at him and Kepha said, look at us. The crippled man fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And Kepha said, I don't have silver and I don't got gold. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth, the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, walk. Peter tells him, walk. And taking hold of him by his right hand, Kepha pulled him up. Instantly, his feet and ankles become strong so that he sprang up, stood a moment and began walking. And then he entered the temple court with them. It's important that he was not in the temple at the time he was outside at the gate. <clears throat> so then he entered the temple court with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And everyone saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the same dude. The Bible doesn't say dude. The same man who had formerly sat begging at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were utterly amazed and confounded at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Kepha and Yochanan, all the people came running in astonishment toward them in Shlomo's colonnade. Shlomo is Solomon. So this was Solomon's colonnade, which was a kind of a courtyard kind of place in the temple. And so I want to give you this setting here, give you some context. So here's this man who is lame from birth. He's crippled from birth. When he's born, they're at Jerusalem General Hospital or wherever it is that they're at. They're in the birthing room, mom and daddy. They're, at, they're in the birthing room of Jerusalem General Hospital. And he's born. And immediately they love him. Y'all, it is inexplicable until you have experienced it. Like it is inexplicable how you instantaneously are madly in love with this slimy little baby. You know, immediately upon birth you are madly. It's, it's, I can't even explain it to you. It overwhelms me when I think about it. But you are immediately. So there he is, this little guy. He's born, this little fella, and he's theirs, and they are madly in love with him. But at the very same instant, the second that he's born, they're overcome with sadness. Well, why are they overcome with sadness? Because mom and dad, they look, at his, they look at his little legs, and his little legs are twisted, and his little legs are deformed. And in that split second, they knew that he would never be able to run. They knew that he would never be able to play Little League. They knew that in that culture that he would never be able to work. They knew that in that culture he would never be able to enter the temple complex. They knew that he would never be able to play with other little children. They knew that he would be branded an outcast, that he would be branded unclean. They knew that, that he would be crippled all of his life because he was born lame. And so every day they take him, and now he's, he's a grown man, and they bring him to the beautiful gate. And if you've ever been to Israel or if you've seen video or if you've seen pictures or something, you know that you can go up to the Mount on the Mount of Olives. 
And the Mount of Olives looks down over the Kidron Valley, and then there's a little rise, and it goes up to the Temple Mount. You know what's sitting on the Temple Mount right now? There's a mosque sitting on the Temple Mount. But you look down, <laughs> you look down from the Mount of Olives up this little rise, and there's the, uh, there's the Temple Mount. But there on the Temple Mount on the eastern side is the Eastern Gate. It's also called the Beautiful Gate. The Beautiful Gate, and, and Josephus, who's a, a Jewish historian, he wrote about that gate, and he said that gate was made of Corinthian brass. Now, we're not talking about a little gate like on your privacy fence in the backyard. We're talking about a gate the size of this foyer out there, right? And it's made of Corinthian brass, and it's, or, it's uh, kind of got panels, huge panels of silver and panels of gold all over it, all over it. And so if you imagine this majesty of this this area in the temple. And so the sun would rise up over the Mount of Olives and shine down over the Kidron Valley and shine immediately into and onto this, this gate. What a sight. Can you imagine the sun beaming and, and reflecting off of all this silver and gold? Just a, a breathtaking thing to see. And so they called it the beautiful gate. And here's this guy laying in the floor at this gate, this beggar. And according to the law, in his condition, he could not go in. He wanted to go in. Like every day he wanted to go in. Every day he wanted to go in, but he couldn't go in. Now you think about this image that that paints. There was this gate, this, this wall of separation this gate between him, really it's an obstacle between him and the worship of Almighty God because what's going on in the temple is the worship of Almighty God and this guy cannot go in. He's a beggar and he's lying there and he's been lying there day after day after day and year after year. You know how long, anybody know how long he'd been laying there? Raise your hand if you know. Been a long time. Chapter four, chapter four of Acts tells us, chapter three doesn't, but chapter 4 of Acts tells us that he's 40-plus years old. So he's been there like a long, long time, day after day. And so what we see here at the beginning of, of Acts 3 is the church's very first recorded miracle. So God is like ready to, to reach another three, four, five thousand 5,000 people just like he did at Pentecost, which was not very long before this event. He's ready to grab the attention of, of some people. And in fact, that verse in chapter four that tells us this guy is 40 plus years old, it also uses a word for miracle that is a little bit unusual. And it's a word that means a sign miracle. Not, a, not just a miracle, not just a mere miracle, not a plain old everyday miracle, but a sign miracle, a special miracle, a miracle that has symbolism, a, a, a miracle with a message, if you will. It's a miracle with a message. And so here's this first recorded Miracle. God is demonstrating to them and demonstrating to us 2,000 years later his power, his power, and he's bearing witness through his people. And by doing that, I believe that he gives us some of the greatest lessons on witnessing ever. First is this <coughs> that Jesus, and if you got a, I hope you got a worship guide because there's some fill in the blanks in there. If you don't, raise your hand. I want to get one in your hands. But Jesus is now, he's working, first big principle, he's now working through his followers. He's working through his followers. He's not not working, he's working through his followers. His presence and his power still at work. 
still available to men and women, still available to me and you. His faithful love and his, and his concern for the world is still being manifested. And, and, and now, though, it's happening through the lives of his disciples. In fact, we are his hands. They were his hands. Me and you, as Christ followers, are his hands. We are his feet. We are his voice. If we don't go and do the work, it doesn't get done. Think about that, y'all. He's still got work to do. And if we don't do the work, who's going to do it? If we don't speak his word to a broken and fallen world, then his word doesn't get spoken to a broken and fallen world. Who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? We are going to do it. We are his hands. We are his feet. We are his voice. I want you to see a few things here. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, One afternoon at 3 o'clock, the hour of Minka prayers, as Caphet, they're up to the temple. It's Minka prayer time, afternoon prayer time. They're heading up to the temple. So the first principle of the way he works through his followers is that, that, that he works through people who are faithful in prayer. People who are faithful in prayer. Peter and John were faithful prayer warriors, y'all. Jews in that day prayed three times a day. Three times, methodically three times a day. And Peter and John, they were still faithful Jews. They didn't look at themselves as not Jewish. They were faithful Jews. They were completed Jews. The Holy Spirit was living inside of them. But they were faithful Jews. Imagine y'all having three specific laid out times of intentional prayer. Not just praying on the run, not just squeezing in some God time when you're in your car in between stoplights or something. Three prayer sessions every single day when we can shut, completely shut the world out and focus on the Lord. Three concentrated times of nothing but prayer. That was the prayer life of Peter and John. And I believe that's one of the reasons why, why Jesus is able to work through them to meet the needs of suffering men and women. So, First of all, he works through faithful prayer warriors. Number one. Number two, I want you to look at the next couple, three verses. So they're up at the temple praying. And a man crippled since birth was being carried in every day. People used to put him at the beautiful gate of the temple so that he could beg from those going into the temple court. When he saw Caph and Yochanan about to enter, he asked them for some money. But they stared straight at him and Caph said, look at us. And the crippled man fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So he works through faithful prayer warriors, warriors, number one. Number two, the Lord works through people who take notice of the desperate needs of the suffering. People who take notice of what is going on out in the world. Again, how long had this guy been begging day after day? 10, 20, 25, 30, 35 years? It had to be something like that. He's doing it day after day. And he's 40 plus years old. And the Bible tells us here in these, these three or four verses that he was not even, he would not even look at Peter and John. He was not even looking at them. He had spent years of people looking the other way, years of people ignoring him, years of being told that he was different, that he was inferior, that he was unclean, he was embarrassed, he was shy, he was withdrawn, he was ashamed. You ever had felt shame, felt guilt, felt embarrassment? 
you will not look people in the eyes. You will look down. So here's this guy beat down for 40 years and he won't even look them in the eye. The point is this, he is suffering and he is really suffering. He is really hurting on the inside and on the outside. He is a living, this image that scripture paints of this guy, he is a living, breathing image of so many people in the world. People who have been wounded. And I'm talking about really wounded. People who suffer, maybe suffering right now, maybe some of y'all. You're suffering, you're wounded inside. You're wounded outside. You're suffering from the neglect often, from the, from the neglect of men, women, who are unconcerned, who are selfish, men and women in a hoarding world, you know, suffering the neglect of a, of, of a world who refuses to let go and share what it has with those who have nothing. Now, an even more critical image is this. It's the image of those who are suffering so much from the neglect of who? Where are they at in that moment? Where are they at? They're in the temple. Who's going in and out of the temple? Say church folks. Church folks are going in and out of the temple. Day in and day out. If you ain't a church folk, you ain't going into the temple. And so it's this image of those who are suffering so much from the neglect of God's people. The very people who profess to know and to love and to display the concern and the compassion that God has and yet act just as selfish and just as unconcerned and just as hoarding as the world. Y'all, we're supposed to look different. Amen. Go read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're supposed to look different. You want to see an image of what a Christian is supposed to look like? Go read the Sermon on the Mount. We should be different. We should not be selfish. We should not be greedy. We should not be unconcerned and uncompassionate. That's not who we are. And y'all, the needs are all over the place. They're all over the place. And the Lord can only work through people who are faithful prayer warriors, of course, and people who, can, who, see, who take notice of the suffering, number two. And number three is this, that Jesus works through people who lock their eyes on the need. Verse four says that they, look what it says. It says they stared straight at him. Talking about Peter and John. They stared straight at him. The ESV translation says they directed their gaze on him. King James says they fastened their eyes on him. And the NASB says they fixed their gaze on him. So it's not enough just to see the need, just to see the suffering like, you know, like I notice it and I'm kind of walk around it a little bit. I really don't want to see it like I saw it, but I can't unsee it, but I really didn't want to see it. So let me kind of, I see it, but let me go the other way. No, that, that's, not, that's not what this means. That's not what that word in the, in the original language means. That word that Luke uses here in Acts, it's way more than that. And it's even more than the way the CJB translates that they stare straight at him. It's that they fixated on him. It's, it's an intense gaze. It's a continuous, 
continual, I can't take my eyes off of him. It's that kind of a gaze. It's a continuous, steadfast attention. It's seeing a need and focusing on that need, focusing your sight, focusing your concern, focusing your attention on meeting that need until the need is met. That's more than, hey, I saw this crippled dude at the temple gate. No, no, they, they couldn't not take their eyes off of him. So Peter sees this guy in need and he wouldn't look away. And he, and he could have just looked away for 35 years like everybody else who just looked away. And he could have just went on about his business. Somebody spelled business, B-I-D-N-E-S-S. He could have just gone on about his business and walked away just like everybody else. But he couldn't do that anymore, y'all. Why is it that he couldn't do that anymore? Why? Because the spirit of the creator of the universe lived inside of him now and he was different. And so he couldn't do that. He was different. And like, like he knew that, that a very big part of his reason for existence now was to meet the needs of the world in the name of the Lord. So here he is, he and John, they locked down their attention on this man with all of their concern and all of their passion. Number three, number four is this, that it doesn't stop with prayer. It doesn't stop with taking notice of the need or even locking down your attention on the need because Jesus works through people who reach out and meet the need. Yeah, you got to notice it first, obviously, but just seeing it, just being, maybe even being just concerned with it and being compassionate, it ain't enough. Of course it starts there. But your concern and your compassion, and it very well may be genuine. I'm not saying that it's not genuine. Maybe real, super real concern. But your concern doesn't meet the need. It's more than just Thoughts and prayers in your little comment on Facebook. I'll be praying for you when you really probably won't. You put the little hand thing up in there on, on Facebook. You say, I'll be thinking about you. You like this and you like that. Like I get it, y'all, I do. But all of that, even if it's genuine concern, that doesn't meet the need. Peter acted. In fact, Peter did something super dramatic. The need existed. He saw the need. He fixed his eyes on the need and it was there for sure. And he knew that the Lord cared. And he knew now he was a representative of the Lord. You know, as a Christ follower, you are a representative of the Lord in the, in, our, in the world that we live in right now. And so it was up to him, Peter and John, to display the Lord's care, to be the Lord's hands, to be the Lord's feet, to be the Lord's heart, to be the Lord's voice. And so Peter looks at this guy. Now remember, the guy's not looking at him. The guy's laying down on the ground, looking down. And what does Peter say? He says, look at us. And th those words, they're authoritative. They're commanding. Peter's, it's a commanding way of saying it. And they stir up something in this dude. They stir up an expectancy in him. There was something about these two men, these Peter and John. There's something, he's thinking, there's something about these two guys as, that, had, that had their eyes fixed on him. Look at us. Look at us, they commanded. So Peter's words tell me that, that he had full confidence that he belonged to God. He had full confidence that he was representing God. He had full confidence that he had a plan to help this man. 
that he fully expected that God would help him to meet the man's need. And he had absolute willingness to act, to reach out by faith, to trust God, and to meet that need that was there in front of him. And so I want you all to think about this. Think about how essential these things are if me and you are going to reach out in the, in the power and in the presence of the Lord to meet the needs out in the world. The, need, the needs are real. The needs are real and the needs will only be met if we are confident that we belong to God. Confident that we are, we're sure that we belong to God. We're sure that we are his representatives on, on this earth right now in the time and in the place where all of us live. Those needs will only be met if we, if we think through and we plan methodically how to meet the needs. Only as we remain um, expectant, believing that God will work through us to end suffering. And only as you and I, all of that can be true, but if we're not willing to act, then the need doesn't get met. To step out in faith, to step out in faith and to meet a need, real needs. So in the church age now, remember what the church age is. The church age is the time between uh, Christ's ascension to the Father and his second coming. So in the church age, big point is that he works through his followers. He works through his followers. Now another huge point is this, that Jesus is alive and his power and his presence are still active in the world. He didn't go on vacation, y'all. His power and his presence are still active in this world. Look at verse 6. Cephas said, I don't have silver and I don't have gold. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Messiah, Yahshua of Nazareth, walk. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk, he says. And taking hold of him by the right hand, Cephas pulled him up. Instantly, his feet and ankles became strong so that he sprang up, stood a moment, and began walking. Then he entered the temple court with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Y'all, one of the most important things I believe that the Father wants us to understand is that his son, Jesus Christ, is alive. He is alive. Remember, think about it. Peter had just prayed this message or, or uh, delivered this message, this first message at Pentecost. And if you remember part of that, Peter said, our big dude, David, is dead and buried and he's right over there. In contrast to our Jesus is alive. He's not dead. Like somehow he passes from the scene of world history. No, he is alive and he's exalted to the right hand of the Father forever. His presence and, and, and his power are still active in this world and he will still continue to be active in the lives of his followers until he returns. His power is still available to men and women, still available to me and you. He still loves and he is still greatly concerned for the world and for every single human being in the world. But now understand this too. His presence and his power ain't found in silver and gold. Now you think about it. this beggar's laying there in the floor. And what does Cephas say? You got no silver and gold for you. And what are they looking at with the sun shining? That'd be this whole room, y'all, ceiling to floor, covered in panels of silver and gold with a little Corinthian brass peeking through. And that's what Peter says. 
Peter said, I ain't got nothing for you, man. I ain't got, I don't have material goods. I don't have clothes. I don't have food. I don't have shelter. I don't have housing. I don't have any community services for you. I don't have the phone number to the United Way. He's like, I don't have any of that stuff. It's not available to me, so I can't give it to you. And notice, y'all, those were the things that this man wanted. And those were the things that this man expected. And those are the things that in the eyes of the world that this man needed. That's what the world says that you and me need. But that's not what he needed. At least it wasn't his most basic need. He needed to be changed. Inside and outside, he needed to be changed. And if he was changed spiritually and physically, physically and spiritually, then he'd be able to walk and he'd be motivated to work and he'd be allowed to work. And so when God looks at this man, he sees his spiritual need and his physical need because God's concern, it was to cure, not to temporarily fix, his concern was to cure, to heal the man completely, to take, to take care of the, of the whole man. And the answer to change the whole man, it ain't found in all the silver and gold on the planet. Look, man, the necessities of, of life are just that. They are life's necessities. They are the things that are necessary for life. But they are not, not, not the basic needs of a human being. Our spiritual welfare is our most basic need. And if we are fixed inside spiritually, healed inside spiritually, if we become a new creation, which happens from the inside, we'll be right with God and we'll be right with people. If not, we will not be right with God and we will not be right with people. If our motivation is strong, then we will be strong. If it is weak, then we will be weak. Y'all, God is after changing the all of us, everything, making us completely whole so that we can be productive, so that we can fulfill our purpose, Ed's purpose, no, so that we can fulfill his purpose in our lives, so that he can allow us and empower us through his Holy Spirit to fulfill his purpose in our lives. He's concerned the Lord with whatever it is, spiritual, physical, emotional, psychological, whatever it is that is keeping us from knowing him, keeping us from being in relationship with him. And so his presence and his power not found in silver and gold and material things. His presence and power are found in his name. Peter says in verse six, I ain't got no money, but what I give you I give you in the name of the Messiah. In the name of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Y'all, when you call upon the name of somebody, you're calling upon the authority, you're calling upon their power, you're calling up, uh, uh, upon their presence. And so when Peter says this, he's proclaiming that the person of Jesus Christ will heal you in the name and in the power and in the presence of Jesus Christ. Walk. He says him. He's alive. He's not dead, y'all. He is alive. And his power and his authority and his presence and his person is still active on the earth. It's the name or the power of Jesus Christ that meets this need. It is not Peter. 
It is not Peter. Peter didn't point to himself and say, look what I did. You want to see a false teacher and a false healer? If you feel like they're pointing to themselves, it ain't real. And he says, it's, it's, not, it's not Peter. It's not silver. It's not gold. They don't bring health, at least not permanently. Peter knew that the presence of the Lord dwelt inside of him, and that is what he could communicate to this lame guy at that gate. Remember, y'all, he's still at work. He's still working miracles. He's still meeting needs. And so you look at this scene, Peter, by faith, reaches down and he takes this man by the hand. And this man, by faith, allows Peter and trusts him to do that. And then Jesus heals him. What an, an incredible display of power. So at this point, I want to challenge you a little bit. Trust him, y'all. Trust him. If you've never trusted Jesus before, trust him today. Trust his presence. It's still here. Trust his power. It's still here. Quit questioning and arguing over whether or not you can, you still have the right to call upon his name over whether or not that we can still trust his presence and trust his power. It's time to trust him. It's time to believe him. It's time to, to trust and believe his, his love and his care for the suffering souls on the earth today in 2021 that it still exists and that, that he still cares and that he's still concerned. Listen, he is still alive. And his presence and his power are available in this world. This is not some ancient thing. And I want you to notice about this guy. Take notice that he was completely changed. Everything about him, his whole attitude, his whole life, his whole being, everything changed. He was no longer shy. He was no longer reserved. He's no longer looking down. He's no longer embarrassed. He's no longer living in guilt and living in shame, uh, you know, being ashamed of who he was. He was saved and he was healed on the inside and then on the outside, and he wanted everybody to know about it. Everybody. He's standing, he's jumping, he's leaping, and he's praising God. Look at verse 9. Everyone saw him walking and praising God. They recognized him as the same man who had formerly sat begging at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they, all these people, they were utterly amazed and confounded at what had happened to him. While he clung to Kaph and Yochanan, all the people came running in astonishment towards them in Shlomo's colonnade. So the results are twofold. Number one is this. The people knew that the man had actually been healed, that the healing was real. Listen, they'd seen this guy for 30 or 40 years every single day laying, looking down and begging, and now he's not. They knew it's undeniable. The, the event, the healing, the miracle, they knew that it was real. Number one, they, they, they just knew it. Bible says in, in verse 10 that they were utterly amazed and confounded at what they saw. Number two, they were attracted. Y'all, they were attracted to it. Jesus is attractive, right? We don't need to be adding something to Jesus to make him more attractive. And then we don't need to be taking something away from the gospel to make the gospel more attractive. No, 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 no. 
He is more than enough. More than enough. We don't add to the gospel. We don't take away from the gospel. We don't add to Jesus. Just give me more Jesus. How about that? Exactly who he is. And so these people, they see this guy healed, jumping up, acting like a wild man in the name of Jesus, and they're attracted. And so what does it say? It says they came running to see what or who or how this guy actually got healed, what happened. And so here's this thought for you today. A changed person, and I mean a person who is truly changed by, by Christ, really changed, will cause people to stand in awe, to stand in amazement, to be confounded like the Bible says. A changed person will stir people to want the same miracle or a similar miracle or some sort of a miracle in their own lives or in the lives of their kids or in the lives of their mom and daddy or their friends or their coworkers because it's attractive. It's attractive. I'll never forget. I'll never forget the first game, little league game I coached after I got saved. And this mama said to me, what is so different about you? What is so different about you? Because before that, you know, I'm the fool kicking dirt and throwing my hat and acting like a moron on the, on the little league field. I was that dad, y'all. And I know that doesn't even sound like a big deal. But in my life, that was a pretty big deal. Because Jesus changed everything about me from the inside out. And I didn't act like a moron, at least on a baseball field. I didn't act like a moron anymore. And so it, it begs the question from the people that know you, like, what is different? Something's different. Tell me what it is. Tell me who he is. Tell me why you're different. So he is attractive and he is more than enough. And so that change in people will stir things up in your friends to want to know why. Let me wrap this thing up a little bit. Peter and John had made plans to go to the temple at three o'clock for prayer. Maybe they hope to share their new faith, because remember, this is right on the heels of Pentecost. Maybe they're going up there to share their new faith with some friends. Maybe they're going up there to have a board meeting with the other apostles in the temple. I don't know. But as busy religious leaders on an important religious mission, they might have brushed off this lame guy at the temple, this guy who accosted them looking for some, some quine. Y'all know what quine is? Some dollars. But Peter and John... They knew something about, write this language down, providential relationships. They knew something about providential relationships. A providential relationship is that God has orchestrated the path of your life crossing with the path of another for a reason. Y'all, the people we run across in our life, we run across them for a reason. And it's God's providence that makes that happen. And so they recognize the sovereign nature of that encounter with this guy. Again, they could have sidestepped him. I don't know. They may have sidestepped him for years. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But you know that he'd been sidestepped for 30 or 40 years. But they recognized the sovereign nature of that encounter. And so in the name of Christ and by his power, this beggar gets healed. And you're going to see in the coming weeks how this event triggers a series of truly amazing 
evangelistic opportunities for Jesus' guys that nobody, like nobody but God could have orchestrated the stuff that's going to happen. And so I want you to be careful. I want you to be careful that as you walk through life, don't get so preoccupied with doing God's work that you miss his will when it's right in front of your eyes. Don't be doing his work for the sake of the work. Now, who's going to do it if we don't do it? Of course we, we do, but we got to have our antennas up. And so all these Jews, they're all Jews going in and out of the temple. They watch this beggar and they could see this obvious change in his life because before he's laid up lame and can't walk and now he's jumping up and dancing and acting like a crazy man praising God. The difference was an, it was an amazing difference. And me and you may not ever see or be the recipient of a physical miracle of healing, maybe not. But God can change us spiritually, emotionally, physically, excuse me, psychologically from the inside out. He can elicit this amazing change in our lives. And those internal changes, they're just as miraculous as an external healing, particularly to your friends and your family and the people that know you. They will, one, they, they, they will wonder and they will be in awe and they will be confounded like, like scripture says. So has God worked a change in your life? Are you praying for him to work a change in your life? Maybe he hasn't worked a change in your life yet, but maybe all of your friends and your family have been praying for you for 20 years for him to work a change in your life. Probably not physical, probably spiritual. If he's worked a change in your life, have your friends and your family noticed that? Have you let them know where the change came from? Have you let them know who wrought the change? Praise God for the work that he's done in your life. I want to encourage you with this, this last thing. First Peter chapter three. Now I want you to know who wrote first Peter. Who you think wrote first Peter? It's not first John, it's first Peter. Peter writes first Peter probably 30 years after this happened. 20 to 30 years after this happened. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter says, Treat the Messiah as holy as Lord in your hearts while remaining always ready to give a reason to answer to anyone who asks you to explain the hope that you have in you. Always be ready to explain where the hope that lives in you had its origin. Where's it come from? Y'all, don't you know that Peter, when he pins this 20, 30 years later, is thinking about that gate? What did Peter do to that guy? He explained where the hope that lived inside of him came from. Walk. Think about that. In the name of the one who lives inside of me, walk. Y'all, if he's living inside of you, you need to be ready every single day to explain where that comes from. Every day. And I'm not saying that you walk over to Zelmo's and start busting people upside the head with the Bible. It don't work. I'm not saying that. But be engaged in the culture. Be engaged in the culture. They could have walked outside, around him, could they not? But they didn't. They engaged with him. They couldn't take their eyes off of him. They locked their eyes on him. They saw a need and they met the need. They met the need. The Holy Spirit living inside of them met the need. 
y'all. That's what Peter and John did when they, when they saw him. And if you don't have the hope living inside of you, let today be the day that the hope does live inside of you. It's because you ain't got nothing to explain if he's not living in there. And it's not a difficult, it's not a difficult formula. Doesn't take a PhD or a master's, right? It's just as simple. And Richard did a wonderful job when he taught through communion, talking about that first weekend, that first Easter weekend. This is the simple gospel. This is Peter's sermon at Pentecost several weeks or just a few weeks before this. I got to recognize that I'm a sinner. I got to recognize that I have a need and I got to repent. The gospel is not repentless. You can't remove the gospel. You can't remove repentance from the gospel and have it still be the gospel. I know I'm talking in circles. Does that make sense? It's part of the deal, man. It's part of the deal. I got no need for Jesus if I got no need for Jesus, right? So I got to repent and turn away best I can, turn away from my sin and turn towards God. Not just turn away from the sin because I can turn away from the sin and turn, turn towards something else. Buddha, Allah, I don't know. I got to turn away from my sin and turn towards the Lord. Believe, confess that he's my Lord and Savior. Believe that he died on that cross <coughs> to make me clean, to heal my withered up, jacked up legs. The death on the cross is what did that, y'all. My brokenness inside, my sinfulness inside, it, 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 it healed me and it made me clean. That's all, that's the gospel. I repent, I confess that he is my Lord and Savior. I believe he died on a cross to pay for my sin and walked out of the grave alive three days later. That's it. If you have not done that ever in your life, let today be the day that you do it. And then you have a hope living inside of you that you can then explain to, to your friends and your family and your neighbors and your coworkers. Y'all pray with me. Lord, let today be the day that people say yes to your offer. Let today be the day that people do repent of their sins. They do turn away from it and turn towards you. Confess that you are their Lord and Savior, that, that your death on that cross that we just celebrated with the Lord's Supper, that, that it counted for them. And they believed that you ran out of the grave alive three days later. And if that is you, y'all, just cry out to him right now, save me, and he will save you. So, Lord, I lift them up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, y'all, if you have a prayer need, if, you, if that just happened to you and you said yes to him, We'll have somebody back there at our little prayer station. Would love to pray with you. I would love to pray with you. Um, just step back there or find me or something because um, we want to walk this life with you. I'll turn it back over to the worship team.